From News 10 in Sacramento, this is the Capital Connection podcast for Friday, March 21st. Happy spring. It's the rites of spring. Uh, We should cue the music. Uh, Yes, a little Vivaldi. A little bit, a little bit. You know, it's been a long time since I took that Masterworks in Music class back in uh, college. Anyway. Now now you've got all this free time, right? You You have the free time. Didn't we announce that last week? That's Anthony York of the Los Angeles Times. I'm John Myers, political editor at News 10, and uh, another one of our coffee shop conversations. I guess some of these podcasts have been of late. Um, maybe we'll move it to cocktail hour before this uh, chapter of the podcast history is done. I got a thumbs up from Anthony on that one. Uh, if you're on Twitter, you see these great photos that the L.A. Times folks gave uh, Anthony, uh, these playing cards, didn't they? The little Sutter Brown takeoff? They did, yeah. It was very, eat your heart out, Sutter Brown. Very thoughtful, very nice. The Joker, the Jack. And the Jack is my favorite, the purple hat with the feather. That's That was mine, too. It was very uh, jaunty. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. You can look at Anthony York 49 for all of the great Twitter hits there. Um, So a few things to talk about this week. Let's start inside the Capitol, and then we'll go outside the Capitol. Um, First and foremost, I think, uh, had a vote for a new Speaker of the Assembly this week. Tony Atkins, Democrat of San Diego, officially selected as the next Speaker of the Assembly, though we knew that was going to happen. And she didn't take office yet. She'll assume the Speakership sometime this spring was the very vague time. Sometime after the Speaker's Cup, the big fundraiser at Pebbles Beach. Beach. That's that's my guess. Well, you know, you only have one Speaker at a time. Right. Right. Only one bank account at a time. But uh, Atkins talked a little bit to the press afterwards. I mean, you know, clearly, um, you know, she's cognizant of maintaining some continuity. She talked a lot about that. She has issues she wants to work on, homelessness issues and affordable housing, veterans issues. Uh, She had to deal with the fact that, you know, now we'll have two Southern Californians running the legislature. We went through that cycle a few months ago, the power shift, theoretically, north-south. Go ahead. There hasn't been a vote in the Senate yet. For De Leon. Right. Has there? I don't think there has. No, no, but I guess we all assume it then, don't we? Uh, yeah, I think... Do you have some news? No. Yes, I am now a candidate. (laughs) (laughs) No, no news. Nothing to report. What do you... I mean, you know, when you look at at, at what Atkins will do, I mean, it is safe to say that Atkins becomes kind of the... Sorry, large truck going by here. I think it's fair to say that uh, Tony Atkins is a bit of a bridge from the old system of how we have elected speakers in their time in office to potentially the new era with the large crop of freshmen from this year in the assembly and the larger term limits. Um, it doesn't mean she won't have substantive things that happen in her in her time, uh, but, but, but definitely a bridge. And that time will be short. I mean, unlike whoever the next speaker is likely to be, uh, Tony Atkins is, is termed out of office here in just about two years after she takes over as speaker. And so... Um, whereas the next speaker will have 8, 10, or 12 years of eligibility left, most likely. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it is a bridge sort of between this Prop 140 era, right, that sort of began in terms of speakers, at least, with Cruz Bustamante uh, and, uh, or arguably, Kurt Pringle, although that's an, that may be another podcast. Just barely. <laughs> uh, and, and whatever comes next in terms of the, the folks that were elected under uh, Prop... Uh, I've already forgotten, 28? Prop 28? Yes, 28. The Prop 28 babies, as I called them so often that I've forgotten their number. So, 
I mean, Atkins, Atkins will step in. She has, uh, I think she has a reputation as, as being collegial, as uh, she pledges to, to hold the office similar to Perez. And Perez got, you know, uh, credit even from Republicans for making sure that he was the speaker of everyone. Interestingly, I mean, there was some flack among some diehard Republicans that Republicans did not put up their own leader for speaker. I mean, this was the, and we even had Republicans speaking out on behalf of Atkins on the floor. I mean, is this just a, a nod to the math, the reality of their numbers, or is it also maybe a, a, you know, say more about the way the House works? No, I mean, I think this is not the first time we've seen it. We've seen this a couple of times over the last few speakership fights, so it's not uh, not terribly surprising, but it's not like it's a contested election, right? It's not like 1994, and so it's not like it would even be close if Connie Conway put her name in for nomination. So I think it is a measure of, of collegiality, and uh, I don't think there's too much to be made of it. But then again, I'm not one of the people that was upset about it. We apparently have picked the loudest coffee shop uh, uh, sidewalk cafe, but that's okay. Thanks, downtown Sacramento. Um, yeah, but having said that, there are, I mean, yeah, there are Republicans who believe that, you know, they don't support the I don't know they don't support that kind of of approach to governing the house and and, and look I mean 10 15 years ago there were Republicans that would have never certainly probably not voted for a Democrat and certainly would not have voted for a lesbian you know for someone who's openly gay and so um, you know that's that's I think a, a change however significant or incremental let other people subscribe a, a, a quantitative measure to that change but I think that is something that's different in sort of how California and Sacramento have changed, and the Republican Party has changed over the last 15 years. So Tony Atkins now becomes, will become, well, not, has not yet, rather, but will soon become the leader of the, of, of the House, but ostensibly of the Democrats in the lower house, of where they hold a supermajority. And the supermajority um, was, I think, somewhat in the news this week, at least in the, the limitations of the supermajority uh, in both houses. So on the same day that Atkins' vote happened, which was the beginning of the week, uh, the current speaker, John Perez, announced that he was effectively, he and the author of the bill, were effectively tabling uh, SCA 5, the constitutional amendment that would have reinstated affirmative action um, in California colleges and universities, largely because there was not support in the Democratic caucus in the assembly, which I think is a uh, another example that there is not always uniformity, even when you have the numbers of two-thirds. The SCA-5 uh, made it through the Senate. Uh, it was all along, I think, designed to be on the 2016 ballot, not the 2014 ballot. Um, but there was concern among some Asian-American Democrats in the lower house that they didn't like the potential impact. And so, again, it's a, it's a limitation of that, of that big supermajority power. And I, I think it reveals something about sort of the new uh, coalition. It's a sort of a fracturing of this wide new Democratic coalition that includes Asian voters and Latino voters that each vote Democratic now about three to one. Uh, but here was an issue that split largely along those ethnic lines. We saw some uh, some Asian groups, some Asian American groups, and uh, particularly Chinese American groups, uh, lobbying and, and rallying against the measure because they fare differently in terms of university admissions when it comes to having affirmative action policies in place. And so um, that's one. Now, I, I, and that was an interesting one for me, sort of going forward, right? File that one away in the back of your brain. I mean, if there is 
going to be uh, a rift in this in this new big tent Democratic Party. Uh, what role will issues like affirmative action play? Will that be one of the issues that continues to be a strain in this new Democratic coalition, or has this has this conversation effectively been been tabled for the next couple of years? Well, and I think it, it also does show too that. Um, that uh, depending on where one sits, uh, their, their viewpoint is not always colored by partisan affiliation. It's by life experience, uh, you know, whether it ever came out to socioeconomic issues or other issues. But again, it, it, you're right. It was, it was an interesting one to watch going forward. Are there other issues other than just this that could perhaps break that group apart? Then I want to pivot to the upper house where... Uh, Democrats do not have that supermajority status right now after uh, two senators have uh, removed themselves from the equation uh, either by uh, legal action that has um, almost finished or legal action that we're expecting in an indictment. And um, the defeat of the of the not constitutional amendment, pardon me, the defeat of the measure that would have changed campaign finance rules in California, the measure that was inspired by the mystery money from the 2012 campaign, more disclosure of donors to these nonprofit groups. This was uh, Senate Bill 27, authored by State Senator Lou Correa, Democrat of Orange County. Uh, it had an urgency clause in it for it to take effect. Hence, it needed the two for it to take effect now. Hence, the two-thirds vote. And it failed. Not a single Republican would walk up and vote for it. There was accusations back and forth as to why it played out the way it did. But um, clearly there, again, is a, is a measure that had Democrats brought it up earlier when uh, Senators Wright and Calderon were still in town, they could have had the urgency on their own. And, well, and there's a question about whether right, some of the accusations and suggestions were that Democrats were all too happy to watch the bill die. Uh, because they can use it as a political weapon against uh, Senators Vidak and Canella, who did not vote for the bill and who wouldn't are, vote for something good, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, I'm not sure that dark money is going to be the issue that moves voters in the Central Valley. I, I, I could be wrong about that, and and I think you'd have to work to convince me that either Senator Vidak or Canella actually have a real reelection fight on their hand uh, in in 2014, but. Um, but, uh, but it is a sign, uh, uh, potentially, of things to come, again, about losing the supermajority and the, and the two issues that we've talked about before, where it's going to be, where it's, it's going to be a major issue, um, are going to be on the discussions about the water bond and about the governor's uh, budget reserve plan. And, and we'll see over the next couple of months here. Um, I mean, that has to be, that's probably not going to be resolved till later this spring or early summer either of those issues, but uh, but the fact that Democrats don't have a two-thirds majority and that some Republicans have to be in play, I think, is going to be uh, an interesting dynamic to watch. And we're, we're also going to get more, you know it, of this discussion of uh, why you can't get a two-thirds vote. Like, I mean, in this particular one on this campaign finance measure, which backers of this, um, of the change, you know, instantly said, people who necessarily weren't inside the building, you know, all of this maneuvering ended up meaning that uh, those donors can remain anonymous for another cycle, absent some other kind of action. I mean, even, you know, even if uh, enough people, you know, a reasonable number of people think that 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 system should change. But so now when we get to water and the budget measure, again, we're going to have all of this back and forth, you know, what was a, a, a political drill, what was, you know, the ulterior motive. In addition to the policy differences, we're just going to get stuck in that, that kind of political uh, 
biting, backbiting, uh, back and forth that we've went through for years on budgets and everything else. Haven't really seen much of it since 2009, 2010, so uh, welcome back. <laughs> There's something to look forward to. It's like I got in my DeLorean and it's 2009 again. Where's Abel Maldonado? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I sort of know. I also want to talk to now outside of the Capitol um, when we talk about uh, issues that we're going to be spending some time talking about in this election cycle. Um, we've talked a lot about something we've talked a lot about uh, for the 2016 cycle has been the issue of income inequality. Um, and this week uh, we got word from Ron Unz, the, uh, the wealthy Silicon Valley uh, activist, uh, conservative activist who has championed all kinds of issues before, run for office himself, uh, most notably the bilingual education measure uh, some years ago. And he has the initiative to raise the minimum wage and effectively said it's dead. He couldn't raise the money for it. He's obviously not going to put all the money in himself to get it on the ballot. Um, that was a big potential um, discussion point that you could have had on this ballot cycle that, that wouldn't happen. I mean, it still ha could happen in the Capitol, but uh, wouldn't be happening via the initiative process. And it seems unlikely to be in the Capitol this year. I mean, I think... There is a bill, of course, by Mark Leno. There is, but I mean, but whether, and, and whether there's some discussion of sort of a tiered minimum wage or something, but I think the calculus was, uh, look, if labor was, had its preference, what, the question was whether there was going to be a coalition between UNS and some of these Silicon Valley Republicans that were starting to see speak up on this issue and organized labor, right? And I think the, calcula the calculation that labor made, number one, the UNS proposal was not their ideal minimum wage proposal. They want to see one that has indexing, right, where as the cost of living goes up and as inflation increases, the minimum wage automatically increases into perpetuity. Um, so I think if labor wants a minimum wage measure, they want one with indexing. And, and I think there's just a political calculation about the electorate in 2014 versus 2016, where you're going to have a presidential election, where you're going to have higher turnout, and the conventional wisdom is more Democrats will be coming to the polls, and that if they're going to take a shot on minimum wage, which I think a lot of people want to do, that uh, it's far more likely that you're going to see something emerge, perhaps with this coalition, but that will involve some more traditional supporters of the minimum wage, and it will probably be in a presidential year. I don't know if this is too uh, far um, beyond what would be reasonable analysis, but if I had to pick a person that would be disappointed to not see it on the ballot, I think would think it might be Neil Kashkari. If he makes the November uh, election, which we all presume he probably has a better shot than Tim Donnelly, no offense to Mr. Donnelly, we'll see how that all plays out, but if he gets out of June and makes it to November, and he's been pushing this Democrats haven't done enough on poverty issue, though he has not been, it's not as though he has supported the minimum wage and he actually uh, walked back from some kind of support of minimum wage during the Republican convention and the one day that I was there in a gaggle with reporters. But if you were looking for a narrative and something to kind of box Jerry Brown in on and labor, as you said, would like the indexing measure and all of that, this could have been your your way to kind of get that discussion out there. Again, not like he has said he supported the idea, but who knows? I mean, when you're looking for when you're looking for meta narratives or larger narratives in a political season, and Kashkari has been trying to talk about um, poverty and income inequality from a different viewpoint. It could have, you know, who knows? Ron Unz could have been his uh, his uh, pal, his knight in shining armor. And the converse of that is also true, where it doesn't force the the governor to engage on this issue. I mean, look, he pushed he 
signed a, an increase to $10 an hour. He owns that. He boasts about it. It's part of his record. But he now doesn't have to deal with a second measure before the before the increase that he signed even fully goes into effect. So he doesn't have to... So it'll. It, I think it helps him stake out turf somewhere in the middle, right, where he doesn't now have to decide whether he's going to anger labor allies by coming out against a minimum wage measure or, you know, or perhaps ingratiate themselves himself to them, but but lose some support in in the center from, you know, business interests and other moderates and might feel $12 is a bridge too far. So um, I think that, that you're right, that, that that calculation is right, not only because Kashkari could have benefited, but it also may have help box the governor a little bit. And it's interesting. I mean, there you, you certainly can't, even we would have always said that the governor uh, had had a good relationship with organized labor in the state, but we saw it yet again this week. I mean, he went and spoke to the California Labor Federation's event here in Sacramento and by all accounts gave a pretty rousing speech where he, you know, uh, you know, aligned himself with pretty much a lot of their viewpoint and denounced other things in terms of Republicans, bragged about the taxes from Prop 30 uh, and high-speed rail. And said old people shouldn't drive. <laughs> yeah, right Older people could have uh, a martini and read their iPad on uh, high-speed rail. Amen. I mean, hey, can't younger people do that, too? That sounds good. I, I mean, I don't know. That's... Or maybe I'll do that <laughs> while I drive. No, that's a bad idea. No, don't, don't do that. Boys and girls, don't don't, do don't don't do any of that, especially because uh, you're 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 looking for gainful employment. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, let's leave it at that. Uh, let Mr. York go back to his. Uh, you know, if you want to see those playing cards again, find Anthony. They're very. Who, whose idea was that? Uh, I think it was a uh, Phil Willen, Chris McGeary, and sort of joint collaboration. But uh, but it was it was very very nice, very thoughtful. And uh, I'll, I'll, if you're nice, I'll give you one. Excellent, excellent. And uh, perhaps next week's podcast can be from the going away party for uh, Anthony Orr. God forbid. (laughs) (laughs) That's Anthony Orr with the Los Angeles Times. I'm John Myers from News 10. We'll see you next time.